here. It's a little bit dry in Beaufort than what it is in George. So we used to come here very often for, for holidays, and we were just uh, always refreshed and re-energized and revitalized. And I had a massive expectation in my heart that I was going to come and I was going to be able to share a word with you guys, but also that I was going to be blessed by you. And I've already been blessed. Uh, my heart is overflowing. Um, I'm at peace. I'm, I've been sleeping well. I've been spoiled by, by Luke and his wife and Amu and Gornel as well. And it's just been amazing to be and to, and to see what the Lord is doing here in your midst. Uh, the presence of the Lord is tangible here in this place. And the love that you have for one another and the excitement that you have for the body of Christ and for what God is doing here is amazing. And um, I hope to, to come again uh, sooner rather than, than later. I think the previous time I was here was about three years ago. So hopefully the cycle can become shorter and um, I can come a little bit more, more regularly. But thank you for your prayers as well. It's been an amazing journey just shepherding our church family. And I have to juggle being pastor in Somerset West, the wild, wild west. If ever any of you guys feel a word leading you towards Somerset West, um, it's probably the Lord speaking to you, so you can just submit to the Lord and, and come. We, uh, is there a bit of an echo? Uh, we're very good at receiving people. We've just received Yuan and Naomi, so thank you for sending them to us. They've already been a, a big blessing to us. And uh, I, I was pastor in Johannesburg for a while, four years in Pretoria, three years in Johannesburg before we moved uh, back to Cape Town. It was always fascinating whenever somebody um, who lived in Johannesburg when they felt that the Lord was leading them to move down to Cape Town, they would normally come to me and just say, hey, Pastor Henry, um, you know, my wife and I, we prayed about this, and uh, we feel the Lord has, has told us to go, and, you know, it's been amazing here with you, but, uh, yeah, we're going, and we just want to ask your blessing and just pray for us, etc. Um, now, when I'm in Somerset West, guys come to me, like Pastor Henry, you know, uh, my wife and I, we think that the Lord might be speaking to us about going to Joburg, but we're not sure really want you to fast and pray with us that, uh, that this is from the Lord. And uh, so it's just amazing. Some places it's easier to serve the Lord than others. And I think George might be one of those places where it's just, uh, just amazing here. And so I've been, I've been refreshed. I'm thankful for the rain that's falling. But I'm especially thankful for the spiritual rain that's falling in this place. And I hope you guys know how special that is. Uh, because this isn't the norm. To be able to receive what you are receiving. To be shepherded by the people that are shepherding you. Uh, Luke, together with Armour and the rest of the team and the leaders, you are in such safe hands. So I really want to encourage you to bring your gifts to the table, grow together, learn together, because we are truly better together. Amen. Stronger together as well as the Springboks have, uh, have shown us. And it, it's a big privilege for me to, to be here tonight. I don't take it for granted. I don't take it for granted to, to serve in this capacity as the servant leader of our church family. And I know that uh, somebody else will come after me and will continue the journey. And so I'm just, I just want to do what God has called me to do for the season which He has called me to. So I want to ask you to continue to pray for myself and Nikki, my wife. Uh, we've got three, three kids. Jonathan is 14, Annika is 12, and Katie is 8. And uh, they keep us on our toes. And um, we see a lot of you guys here have kids who are varsity through the teenage years. So I think we're going to come for tips as to how to handle it, because my little girl, Annika, she's 12 now, and already she and her mom, they're beginning to have some very interesting conversations around dress and this and that, and it's, uh, I went to greet her the other day at school, it's going overseas, and so I arrive at the school, and uh, she comes to the foyer, we called her out of, out of class, and uh, so she comes in, and I'm there to give her a hug, 
lift her up and give her a hug and she's like, Dad, you're embarrassing me. So like, oh my goodness, it started. All right, so back at home, she's okay, she gives me massages and all of those things, but in public, I just shouldn't, shouldn't embarrass her. Um, but I'm glad that you guys are so affectionate. I'm a hugger, and I see that the love is quite strong in this place. So you guys love giving hugs, so that's amazing. I think that's one of the reasons why I feel so at home. Little Oliver at home also gave me a hug yesterday as I arrived at Luke, Luke's house, and it's been amazing. And the Holy Spirit is here to give each and every one of you a big hug. His presence is in this place. So just relax. The Lord knows why you are here, and He knows what He's busy with. I want to pray for us. Father, thank you so much that we can be, God, in your presence. Thank you so much, Lord, that you are God of our lives. Lord, thank you that you know each and every one of us. And thank you, Lord, that you know the end from the beginning. And you know why we had to be here tonight to not be somewhere else. And I pray that your purpose for tonight will be established, Lord. Thank you for what you have already done. Thank you for the beautiful presence of your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for the prophetic words, God in this place, Lord. And, and thank you, Father, that, that in this place, the refiner's fire will continue, Lord, to have its way with our hearts, to purify our hearts, Lord. Thank you for the purity of worship that rises from this place like a sweet fragrance. And I pray, Lord, that this church will never lose their passion for you, will never lose their innocence, Lord, their childlike faith and trust in you, Father, in Jesus' name. And I also sense, Lord, that you're going to use this congregation to restore the innocence of other churches. Lord, people have lost their faith, whole churches even, that have become cynical. Lord, that you're going to use this congregation to impart childlike faith and innocence and trust, Lord, in you. And I pray that this church will never grow old. Lord, will never become calculated. Lord, will never lose just their ability and their willingness to step out in faith and to follow your voice. And so I thank you, Lord, for old people and young people here in this place, Lord, who will together pursue you with everything that they have, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So Amos asked me to chat to you guys about revival, uh, but within the context of uh, a little bit of my own story. And so this morning I shared some of my story, and I, and I felt this evening to, to do that again with those of you guys that missed out on this morning. I'm going to add a little bit to that as well. So those of you guys that are back from this morning, you're going to get a double dose with a little bit of extra in there as well, hopefully for you. Um, so I've been thinking and praying about this message for a long time, and when Amo asked me to talk about revival, there's so much in my heart that I, that I wanted to share with you, but in essence, revival really boils down to us getting back to God's purpose for our lives, us getting back to the fact that God has called us to live not just in word, but also in power. When Paul ministered, he ministered the word, but he ministered the word in word and in power, preaching and the confirmation of the preaching with signs and with wonders as well. And I came across this this interesting little cartoon, which made me think about the spiritual context of the church a little bit. And there we see that little guy with the horns there, all apologies to the devil. He probably doesn't look like that, but we take that as it, as it might be. And he comes to this chap and he says, hello, I'm the prince of darkness. And uh, the guy says, oh, sweet, my mate, are you from Eshcom? So um, what I do want to say when we talk about revival, we talk about darkness, we are not fighting against Eshcom. We're not fighting against anybody who's working there, but we do understand that in a very real way, the church struggles with a disconnect, that there's a power shortage in the church, and we have to trust God to come and restore that power. In other words, the power that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's a place for us to, 
to do programs. There's a place for us to, to do structure, and there's, there's room for that, and it, it is important. But unless we have the power of God in our midst, unless we have the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, when we gather like we're gathering now, and when we love one another, and we walk with one another, and we live with one another, we're just going to be a good organization. We're just going to be like any other NGO that wants to do good works. We're going to help the government. We are going to make a little dent in poverty here and there. But we are not going to have life change. We're not going to have eternal life change. And God didn't just call us to do good things. He has called us to impact people for eternity. In actual fact, He has called us to collectively push back the forces of darkness. And I hope you guys are praying for ESCOM because I believe it's symbolic of what God wants to do in our country. He wants to switch on the lights. He wants us to bring things that are in secret into the light. And He wants us to push back the darkness that wants to overwhelm this country of ours. And Jesus gave us this powerful mandate in Matthew 10 verse 8. And it's a powerful verse because it comes in the context of His disciples beginning to argue with Jesus or really just ask Him a whole bunch of questions. Jesus, is this the time that you will establish the kingdom of Israel? Is this the time where you will come and you will fit into our needs, basically? That's what they're saying. Is this the time when you will answer all of our prayers? Because Jesus, just in case you have forgotten, we have been oppressed by the Romans for hundreds of years. Will this be the time when your kingdom comes the way we want your kingdom to come? And Jesus challenges them on that and he says, guys, you are stressing about things you shouldn't be stressing about. You are writing books about things you shouldn't be writing books about. You are watching YouTube clips, things that you shouldn't be. You are worrying about unnecessary stuff. This is what I want you to do. And I've often told myself, even in this journey of, of change, the way as a show of our family went through, God, there's so much that I don't know. I'm still discovering things in my job day by day. I'm discovering things that were said, things that were done, things that were promised. I'm discovering things on a daily basis. There's so much that I don't know. Uh, I cannot really tell you a 10-year plan. Often I can't even tell you a five-year plan about where I'm going to be. But what I do know is that God has called me to do certain basic things. And instead of worrying about all the other major things, I'm going to be majoring on the basic things. And the gospel is a very basic gospel, and its power lies in its simplicity. And Jesus says, forget about all the other stuff, but do this. Bring health to the sick, raise the dead, touch the untouchables. I love that touch and heal the, the lepers, kick out the demons. You have been treated generously, so live generously. Freely you have received, freely give. And we often use that verse within the context of money. Freely you have received, freely give. But it actually speaks about the fullness of what God has given us. The fullness of what He has made available to us. You have received that freely. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. Now freely give it. And what happens when we become hurt or we pick up injuries in our spirit or we get disappointed, we stop giving freely. We start giving conditionally. We start giving in a more calculated way. So what will this person do with what I'm giving them? You know, my girls challenge me on that all the time. We drove past um, people who live on the street quite often, and I'm amazed by how often their hearts still break for those people. Jesus, uh, Daddy, don't we have something to give? And I'm like, no, you can't just give anything to anybody. You don't know what they're going to do with that stuff. And there's a place for that. But I've discovered that mostly this is an excuse from my side not to get involved. And they just like, there's somebody hurting. Can we just give something? Can we just get involved in their lives? And I believe that part of the blessing that this church has 
is to engage with the needs around you guys with that kind of innocence. Not in a, not in a, in a irresponsible way, but with an innocence of faith again. You say, Father, you have given us so much, we want to bless those around us. We want to heal the sick, we want to raise the dead, we want to touch the untouchables. And within a revival culture, that is what happens. These things right now, they, they don't happen that often. They're a little bit of the exception. Within a revival culture, we see those things happening almost as the norm. We see the supernatural becoming almost natural in our midst. John 1 verse, verse 1 to 5 lays the foundation for us. What is the power? What brings the life? What brings the light? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Right throughout the years, from Herod to the Caesars to Hitler to communism to modern secularism to all sorts of worldviews, the darkness has tried to overwhelm the light of the gospel. For more than 2,000 years, the darkness has tried, and guess what? The darkness has failed. So be encouraged that if the darkness has been failing for 2,000 years to overcome the light, surely the light inside of you can overcome the darkness that right now wants to overwhelm you. Surely if God can sustain the light of the gospel, He can sustain you. Have a look at Israel, a small little nation. If God can preserve that nation for all of these thousands of years, so God can preserve you. And I felt some of you, you feel like I've got this light, this hope, this thing that I'm holding on to, but Heinrich, you don't understand the darkness that I'm confronted with. You don't understand the depth of my addiction. You don't understand the depth of my family devastation. I want to tell you the light of the gospel still overcomes the darkness. It's not a light that you generate. You can't put in a little generator, fuel it with diesel, and get the thing going. It's the light of the gospel. It is the light of God, the light of the eternal Son that lives inside of you. You know, we have these little phones, and on the phones you have the flashlight, and you put the thing on when the power goes out. But the light of the gospel is like trying to take the power of the sun and squeeze that into a flashlight or into your phone. Try and do that. That is what you have inside of you, a light that is a thousand times more powerful than the sun lives inside of you. So whatever darkness you are being confronted with, know that the light inside of you is greater. It is greater. This beautiful verse in Matthew 4 verse 15 speaks about Jesus entering into the, into the land of Galilee, the region of Galilee, within Judea, and you know, Jesus had to decide where was he going to make his base? Where was he going to, to make his home? And from there, he was going to minister and move around and do what he had to do within the more or less three years that he had. He didn't have a lot of time. He didn't have years upon which he, he could do what he wanted to do. He had about three years in which he had to do that. And so the location, where's George? I know some of you guys here are in, in property, investing in property. And you know the most important thing is location. The second most important thing is location. And the third most important thing is location. It's location, location, location. And for Jesus, it was the same. Where was he going to make his base? What was he going to use? Who were going to be the people that he was going to choose to advance the gospel? And if I were him, I would have chosen Jerusalem. I would have chosen the city. I would have chosen the guys that are up and coming. I would have chosen the guys who won the talent shows and the guys that were the head boys and the guys that were the rugby captains because they've proven leadership credentials. You know what? Sometimes in church we still act that way. 
Sometimes in church, we still choose the souls that are head and shoulders above the rest rather than the Davids that get no attention. But Jesus chooses Galilee, a place that the Bible says was steeped in darkness. In, in actual fact, the Bible calls that place a deep, dark, dark country of death. They watched the sun come up. I love that. When Jesus started ministering and preaching the kingdom, those people trapped within that deep, deep darkness watched the sun come up. There are people all around us, Shofar George, here in your beautiful area in which you live. I know this, this feels like heaven. When I come here, it's like, Jesus, heaven is probably just a short step up from here. But I know that there's so much darkness all around us. And there are people that are trapped in that darkness, and they are waiting for the sun to rise. They are waiting for the sun to rise. And guess what? Where is the sun? It's in you, and it's in me. They are, in actual fact, waiting for us to take the sun to them. As we would take the gospel of His love and of His light, and we enter into the darkness of people's lives, they will see the sun rise. And in a very real way, the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come as far as He could go. Jesus came to earth, came to the cross, and now He lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And He wants to rise through us over people. And whenever we engage with Him, we take the Son with us. I'm going to share, you, share a little bit of my story with you, but the kingdom of darkness is a kingdom of death. You know, if, if you, you can flight that, so some of the characteristics that you find within uh, a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of physical poverty. But mostly what you find there is that within poverty, within the darkness of, of poverty, people are just subject and exposed to so much. You normally have the infant mortality rate sky high within poor communities. You have a lot of people dying of things that normally you can get cured of just by taking a simple uh, medicine or going to the doctor in time. You have a lot of people being vulnerable to being sex trafficked and, and, and human trafficked because of desperation. I was, I was in uh, um, Indonesia a while ago and I met somebody who's working in Colombia and he shared with me that he's working with third-generation prostitutes, where the girl who's prostituting now, her mom was a prostitute and her mom's mom was a prostitute, and introduced them to prostitution because of the desperation in which they find themselves. And so when he preaches the gospel there, when he takes the gospel there, it is more than Jesus loves you and Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. It is, preacher, how are you going to get me out of this mess? And the gospel has to find an answer for that. And the gospel has an answer for that. In our country, we have one of the highest rates of infanticide and, and uh, a femicide. Our country is the fourth most violent country when it comes to, to the killing of women. And I think we're like three times higher than the, the, the norm when it comes to the killing of, of babies. We've got some real issues. And thousands and hundreds of thousands of our country's people are living in those circumstances. And they need the sun to arise. There's this report on... on um, uh, infectious diseases, and I don't want to read everything for you, but basically what they say is that social, economic, and biological factors interact to drive a vicious cycle of poverty and disease from which, for many people, there is no escape. This was driven home for me many years ago. I was, you know, one of the things I admire about Amo is his tremendous Afrikaans dictionary. I love that. He's so comfortable in Afrikaans, the way that he, that he ministers. He never stresses. Maybe you guys have seen him stress. I haven't seen Amu stress a lot. When, even when we went into the new season of, of change, 
Do you know something about him? Huh? <laughs> it's like a look. <laughs> um, it's amazing to have seen, to have journeyed with Armour when we went through our changes. He was just calm. Joy was there upon him. And for me personally, he doesn't even know. It was such a, a comforting um, knowledge for myself to know that Armour is, is walking this road. Uh, because we were on the knife's edge at one stage with the devil coming in and scattering us as church family. And we were able to come together around the love of Jesus. And, and I've got so much respect just for the way he's been journeying with you guys to keep your eye upon the prize and upon Jesus. But one of the things that I, I also admire about him is, is his ability to just welcome the Holy Spirit and invite the Holy Spirit into everything that happens here. And that's, I believe, the key that God is giving us as well. Let's invite the Holy Spirit into everything that we do. And for me, I realized that when I was running home one day from school, I was teaching before I went into ministry. I was a high school teacher, and I was teaching in Edgemead, and I was training for a marathon, and I was running home. By the way, I'm and myself, we passed as kids. We've got the biggest muscles in the entire chauffeur movement between the, between the two of us. And so I was running home from, uh, from school. And Thank you, Luke. And as I was running, I saw these guys out of the corner of my eye. And these three guys standing there. And there was a, a road that was leading through. Um, now it escapes me. Grassy Park in Cape Town gang-infested area, and, and as I was running, I saw the three guys, and the Holy Spirit started to alert, just be, be on alert, just be, just be careful, and so I went over on the other side of the road, and as I'm running, I'm running past them, I sort of looked at them, saw they had baggy jeans that was hanging there, you know, like boots on, I'm thinking to myself, I'm quite fast, I cannot run these guys, and I'm running, and as I'm running, all of a sudden, I, I felt something just hit me from the back, pulled me down, and it was a dog that sat on me, and I didn't realize it. So the dog bit me, dragged me down. I fell, rolled over, got up again, and these three guys were around me. One with a, um, a gun, one with a knife, one with a brick. And it's weird what goes through your mind. I don't know how many of you guys have had a near-death experience, but everything slows down. All right, so I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm looking at this, and all I'm thinking of is brave, not brave, but saving Private Ryan. There's a scene where this one guy gets stabbed with a knife slowly into the sternum here, and I'm thinking, Jesus Please, rather let it be the gun. I don't want to, the brick is going to be sore, the knife is going to be sore, so if I need to go, let it be the gun. But I'm standing there, and these guys, are, obviously, they want to rob me, take my stuff that I have, my bag, my watch, my shoes. They take the watch, they take the bag, want to take the shoes, and I'm saying to them, no, please, there's a line. You can't take my shoes. I need my shoes for the marathon. And as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, don't argue with the guys, just give them your shoes. Then a car comes by. The guys run off, and now as they're hiding in the bushes, I'm trying to catch a lift, trying to slow somebody down. So I'm next to the road, my legs bleeding. I'm trying to catch a lift. Nobody wants to stop. And in that moment, my heart cries out to the Lord. Jesus, you have said that you will be with me. The, the lights then red again. The car stopped. These guys come out again. And then they okay, obviously upset that I'm not wanting to give them my shoes, and they're now wanting to kill me. And as I'm standing there, all of a sudden, I realize what that thing says. Poverty is basically slavery to no options. And I'm standing there, and I realize as clear as daylight, I'm not going to die. And I realize that I am not the victim here. I realize that I'm not the slave here. These three young men, in all likelihood, are slaves to a bigger system. But they are trapped within a cycle of violence. The Cape Town, within those areas, the most violent 
city in the world, well, in the world, I think it's fifth or sixth most violent city in the world now. In our country, it's the most violent part of our country. Those young men were victims. They felt and they thought they had no options. I was standing there. I was a child of God. And I knew my life was in God's hands. And poverty does that too. Anyway, so long story short, um, a car drove past and it was a friend of um, the guy that I stayed with who recognized me from an earlier visit. He never drives down that road. Had to pick up his baby from another place. Drives past. The light shines on us. It was late at night. The guys run off. I get in the car. I make it back home safely. And I realized in my heart of heart, God, you've got a purpose. You've got a destiny for my life. But I'm not subject to the spirit of this world. My time doesn't lie within a man's hands. My time is in God's hands. But these guys don't know that. They think the only way that they can get out of the system is to perpetuate the system. And I believe that God wants to set people free from the slavery of that system. In Luke 4 verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I believe that God has anointed this church and has anointed each one of us to understand there's an anointing upon us to go into those places where people feel they've got no option. And I had to tell this guy, I said, guys, you can do with me what you want to do, but I know my life is not in your hands. Then they started arguing with one another about whether they should kill me. And the one guy said, no. The other guy said, yes. And whilst they're arguing, the deliverance comes. I know for a fact that as we are sitting here, your time, your days, it's in God's hands. But there's a reason and there's a purpose. Because God was preserving my life for the season and for the seasons to come. You are alive because God has deemed you to be alive. Because God has a purpose for your life. Because there are things that you need to do. There are people's lives which you need to impact. There are cycles and legacies which you need to break. And new cycles and new legacies that you have to begin. That's why there's breath in your lungs still. That's why you haven't gone home to be with Jesus. We were on the, on the, on the lagoon outside Stanford, between Stanford and Amanas, uh, over the holidays, in the canoe. The waves all of a sudden come up. The canoe tips over. Myself, Nikki, my wife, and our eight-year-old girl in the canoe. Thing capsizes, and then Katie is treading water. Fortunately, she had a life jacket on. And she's like, Daddy, no, is this my time to go? She says. <laughs> I'm like, no, baby, it's not your time to go yet. Just relax. Get into your back. It will be fine. It is not your time to go yet. Because God has got purpose for you. He's got a purpose and he's got a destiny for you. But you don't know and I don't know for how long we're going to be alive. But you have to wrestle with God. God, why am I still alive? Why is there still breath in my lungs? Why hasn't the depression stolen my life? Why am I not lying somewhere in a gutter today? Why am I not drinking myself silly somewhere else? Why didn't my business went bankrupt, totally destroy me? Why am I still alive? Why is there still hope inside of me? There's hope inside of you because God has anointed you to proclaim the good news to the poor. And there are people trapped in darkness that are waiting for the sun that lives inside of you to arise over them. We're going to pray for some of you because you need to receive the arising of the sun over your own life first. You need to bring the darkness that want to steal your hope Bring that to God tonight and say, Father, arise over me. Jesus said that he has come so that we can have life and have life in abundance. And in my own life, I've experienced this, and I just want to show you that, that picture. So much abundant life in my life, in my brother's lives, in my cousin's lives, 
We are such a blessed family. And very little of that has to do with myself. Very little of that has to do even with my brothers and my cousins. My, my, my cousin next to me on my right-hand side, he's a, he's a pilot. He's a worship leader. The Lord used him to, to train many of the worship leaders in Shofar. Um, my youngest brother next to my cousin there, he's a pastor at Live Village, doing an amazing job. My brother to my left, he's an engineer, Danell, and, uh, um, and a drummer. The lady there on the left, the most beautiful woman in the world, she's my best friend, she's my wife, she's a pharmacist, she's an incredible gift of God that he has given me. My mother standing in front of me, she is the lioness that's fighting for this family. She's been praying for me before I was born, whilst I was still in her womb, she's been praying over me, speaking destiny and speaking life over me. When I was a, um, a young boy, my mom and dad, they um, were exposed to the faith healing movement way back in the early, early uh, mid-70s. And they threw away all the mats and all this stuff. I went walking on a wall after my brother, as younger brothers do. You follow the older brother. And then he jumped off on the one side of the wall. And I fell off on the other side of the wall. Hit my head. It was blood all over the place. No medicine. They were challenged. I, I, I blacked out, lost consciousness. My folks prayed for me, prayed destiny, prayed life over me. I've been prayed into my destiny. <laughs> I've been prayed into my destiny so many times that there's no way to escape for me. Some of you guys have to lay hold of the destiny of your children. Some of you need to start praying for your unborn children. Some of you guys, you need to start praying for your wives if you haven't met yet. You need to set things in motion in the spirit even before they start manifesting in the natural. Because my mom was holding on to words and promises the Lord had given her. When I was born in Beaufort West, they put me in a, in a, a, a defective incubator because the only working incubator was on the white side of the hospital, and they were not going to put a colored child in, a, in, a, in the white side of the hospital. My mom prayed for me that I would make it out of there alive. She prayed me through a lot of stuff. She prayed me through my times of rebellion, through my times of not knowing whether I'm coming or whether I'm going. She prayed for me. Moms, there's some of you, you need to embrace the spirit of the lioness. You need to embrace the fact that God has called you as a mother and as a grandmother, and you need to start fighting for your offspring. Amen? You need to start fighting. The blessing of three generations. There we are baptizing my little girl. She was six years old at that stage. She wanted to get baptized in Beaufort West. The Lord made a way for us. There's me, myself, and my dad. Three generations just worshiping God together, praying together. And I know that I am where I am today because of the generational blessing upon my life. Not because I'm amazing, but because my father went ahead of me. And he paid a high price. My dad was a Dutch Reformed minister. I love the, the Enchi Church. I love our, our legacy. I love the foundation of the word. I love the fear of God. I love the respect and the love for the house of God that I've received within the Dutch Reformed Church. Amazing. But my dad, whilst he was still studying, he met a friend who was baptized. A friend baptized him. And so the first year of being in ministry in Somerset West, which is where I am now, so come full circle, um, they ran into a lot of trouble because they started baptizing um, youngsters. And they were baptized as well that first year. So it was the first year of their ministry they were baptized. So my dad made it to the front page of the burger. Right? But back in the day, those, those of you guys that are younger, you won't remember this, but there were two burgers. There was a burger for the colored people and a burger for the white people. Right? So my, my, my dad made it onto the burger, the burger extra, they called it. Front page, Dumini laat himself doop. All right? And so they went through a lot of persecution, a lot of things. When they left Somerset the West, the Lord spoke to them to go to Walthus Bay. The, one of the elders got up and he said, Father, I thank you that you are removing the stumbling block out of our midst. That's the way that they sent him off. 
And I never knew that because my dad never spoke to me about that. He just told me about the amazing experiences they had in Somerset West, the incredible people that lived there, how amazing that congregation was. It was many years later. We were living in Uppington. There was a phone call. A guy phones. I pick up the phone. It's a wire phone still. And he says, can you speak to Albert Titus? Do many Albert Titus? So I call him. My dad goes to the phone. They chat afterwards. I ask my dad what's going on. He tells me the story that those same elders, they were so glad that he went. That's probably 20 years later. Now I've invited him to come back to be part of a celebration service, and they just wanted to thank God and honor him for what has happened. And then he told me the story about the pain and the trauma they went through. And I never knew about that. And I realized the power that we as parents can have to create an atmosphere where our children can love the house of God. I'm going I'm to just chat with some of us as parents. We need to be careful what we say around our kids, around the stuff that we're having to deal now in a room, things that we have to be dealing with between one another even. Don't poison the hearts of your children towards the house of God and towards other believers. Don't even poison the hearts of your children towards the government. I remember that my dad would never say anything negative, anything bad about the government. It's amazing. When I started growing up, I had questions. Uh, we lived in Boxburg, 1985. don't know if anybody of you can remember what Boxburg was like in 1985, but it was an interesting place. And so there were a lot of things there that I, I didn't understand in terms of the political setup. And God is, there were things that were happening there. So I had questions like, Dad, why should we go around the corner and get our food when we bought groceries through a little window? Why couldn't we use the front entrance? Dad, why are there benches here for the Europeans only? I mean, they're in England. Why, why would they... You know, why do they have benches only when they come on holiday? What's, what's going on here? And my dad would say, we are praying. We are praying. We love everybody. Dad, why, why can't an, an, a, a white Dominic come and minister in our church? You can't go and minister in their church. We are praying. God is good to us. There was a song that we would sing, God is so good. He's so good to me. And he just kept on saying that to me. Kept on saying, our weapons are not carnal. They are mighty through God. We pray for the government. We respect the government. We honor the government. Right? And because of that, he instilled in me respect for authority, and he instilled in me an ability to believe the best about people in the worst of circumstances. And I compare my life to the lives of my friends around me whose fathers were also ministers but started preaching a gospel that just went over the edge. How many of them aren't following the Lord anymore because they've become bitter and angry people? Be careful of your words. I just feel that I need to just emphasize that. The spirit that we can leave for our children is tremendously important. We can shape them and set them up for revival. So parents, are you setting your children up for revival? Guys, are you setting one another up for revival in terms of the atmosphere that you create through your spirit? Because revival isn't about rules and regulations. Revival is about a spirit that we carry. It's about a spirit of openness for the Lord's spirit and for God to come and move through one another so that he can do what he wants to do. I've got no idea how I'm going to finish this in the 22 minutes that I have. But revival, there are four basic things that I've seen in our family's life, the impact of revival. Revival is invasive, all right? It's incarnational and it's confrontational and countercultural. In other words, revival needs someone to be the seed that's prepared to fall into the ground and die. Revival will come at a price. Revival needs someone who is prepared to be the seed like Jesus was to fall into the ground and to die. 
Revival needs someone to be the least. Revival needs someone to put somebody else's needs above their own. Revival needs someone to forgive first. Revival needs someone to become uncomfortable first. Revival needs hands and feet. Revival needs a body. Are you prepared for your body to be the vehicle of revival? Are you prepared to be the seed that will fall into the ground and die? Whatever that means. I don't know what that means. But it is a question you have to answer yourself. Are you prepared to die for life to come? Revival is transformative and continuous. It's communal and happens the best within partnership. It rarely flourishes within isolation. It's not a one-man show. And revival is transgenerational. And I quickly want to share a little bit more about my own story as far as that is concerned. Revival is invasive. It's countercultural. And one day when I get to heaven, I want to ask the Lord Jesus, first and foremost, Lord, I'll skip David. I'll skip Moses. I'll skip all of those guys. Just please take me to Umkubus Leru. Where is his mansion? in heaven. I want to get to his mansion. Please take me there. I want to meet him. Go to the, the next slide, please. Not the scripture, the one after that. There's a photograph. Yes. I want to meet this hero. This man, I've never had the privilege and I've never had the honor of meeting him and he has never met me. But besides my dad, he has had the most profound influence upon my life. And his name is Umkubus Leroux. Umkubus Leroux is an incredible man. He was a farmer in the Villiersdorp an area where he had an encounter with God. He had a personal one-on-one encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he grew up religious, he didn't have a living relationship with Jesus. He was part of a system that perpetuated the enslavement of many, many people who worked on the farms to alcoholism. In, our, in, our, in the Western Cape today, we have the highest rate of uh, fetal alcohol syndrome in the whole world. Babies being born to mothers who are addicted to alcohol. And within that farm, that cycle was busy perpetuating itself in the 50s. And he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. His life changed. He had a personal revival experience. And God started speaking to him, saying to him, your personal revival is good and it's amazing, but it has to manifest into something more than that. It has to impact the way that you do business. It has to impact the way you do your budget. It has to impact the way even in which you train your kids for how they're going to live. And so he made the radical decision against the Lord of uh, Council. He ripped out all the, the vineyards and he planted apples. And everybody said, you're falling on your head. Apples don't work in Valiersdorp. It doesn't work in that valley. If you guys were to go to Valiersdorp today, you'll see mostly apples that are being planted there. He was a pioneer. The Lord blessed his obedience to bless his family. They've got farms all over the place. But the first step was a dangerous step. The first step was a great risk, and he lost some family relationships short term because people wanted nothing to do with this crazy man who was doing this all for the sake of the brown people that were on his farm. Because he said, I cannot be a child of God and not have this gospel transform, not just how I worship, not just how I pray, but how I live as well. And so he took that radical step, and because of that, he broke the cycle of addiction. Because these farm workers, they had access to all of this wine, this cheap wine. And he said, guys, I'm going to start paying you better. Plus, I'm going to remove the temptations. And I'm going to say, we're going to change this industry. And during that time, what he also did was he opened up the farm for evangelists to come and to minister. And during one of the evangelism crusades, a young 13-year-old boy gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where my testimony starts. My testimony started with a 13-year-old boy who gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would never have been able to give his life to the Lord. I don't want to say never, but there's a good chance 
that it would not have happened, would have taken longer, had it not been Kumkubus Larue that said, my farm is going to be my church. My farm is going to be my mission field. My farm is going to be the place where the kingdom comes, where the will of God is being done. And I'm not going to just wear my Sunday best, be one Christian on a Sunday, and then be the farmer on the Monday. I'm going to be a Christian on the Sunday and the Monday right through till the next Sunday. Amen. And so in essence, in essence this, this gospel was invasive and it, and it challenged him. And it, I believe it challenges us as well. Are we prepared to have everything open before the Lord? God, how I teach. God, how I do my business meetings. God, how I love my wife. God, how I do my sports. Everything, let it be a vehicle through which revival can come. Because the greatest danger for revival is these compartments that we have. This is my Sunday life. It's my religious life. This is my pastor's life. This is my, my personal life. This is my public life. All of it is open before the Lord. And God wants to use all of that. And so, first and foremost, Umkubus Leroux had to choose and he had to say that I am a believer first before I'm an African-speaking person. I'm a believer first before I'm a South African. I'm a believer first before I'm a Leroux. I'm a believer first. And when I'm a believer and I allow the grace of God to flood through my life, then I become the best possible African-speaking person I can be. Then I become the best possible South African that I can be. Then I become the best possible Leroux that I can be. Does that make sense to you? But when we have it the other way around, we act in the flesh. And we actually do damage to what God wants to do. And we lose out on redemptive purpose. Revival is transformational. And Romans 12 verse 2 says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture. Right? Don't, just, don't just allow your culture to, to dictate to you how you, you're going to act and what you're going to say and who you're going to mix with and how you're going to use your money. Instead, fix your attention on God because you'll be changed from the inside out. The Amplified says, you'll be transformed and progressively changed. And within my family bloodline, within my context, when, when Umkubus LaRue started to usher in revival, the context of my bloodline was, it was full of devastation. I showed you the picture a little bit earlier. But it was full of devastation, right? We, we, we come from a long line of, of, of slaves. Some of my forebears came, came from Malaysia. We were transported to, to Africa to come and work on, uh, on the, the wine farms in, in Cape Town. Some of my ancestors were Khoi. Some of them were Sand. Some of them were Dutch. There's a mixture, right? I've got all sorts of blood that's coursing through my veins. But there was a lot of, lot of oppression. I grew up with stories from my grandmother, of, of the disinheritance that they went through because her, her grandmother, my grandmother's grandmother, was a slave. They were set free, and she married a farmer from Beaufort West. He was the eldest son. He fell in love with this Malay slave girl. And because of that, he was, he was disowned, and he lost the farm. And that's from my one side, the, 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 the story. So a lot of that was, 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 was being rehashed, and that bitterness was there, and that anger was there. My, my grandfather... Didn't know his dad. Uh, and because of that, because of the trauma that he went through during the Second World War, he picked up a lot of pain, a lot of aggression. Didn't know how to verbalize his pain. Didn't know what to do with his nightmares. And so he started drinking and started drinking and started drinking. Through the grace of God, my father, whenever we went to visit him on the farm, never took us there when he was drunk. So I just have beautiful recollections of my dad. But my own dad grew up in a home where alcohol ruled where he was beaten very often, where his sisters were beaten, and where things were very intense and very bad. But through it all, there was a praying grandmother. And I, I didn't say this this morning. Within all of those things, the, the alcohol abuse, the, the marital tension and pressure, 
many of my, my dad's sisters falling pregnant, as you often have within those contexts outside of marriage. My dad himself, oh, you wait too soon. You, you pass for me. Just, just go back. Within that, that whole environment, at one stage also, my dad on his way to going to work, um, I think it was, he was 10 or 11 years old. There was another drunken man. Um, got hold of him, dragged him into the, uh, into the trees and raped him. Happened a, happened a few times. And as a young boy just entering into his teenage years, years of identity, the devil came to crush him. The devil came to tell him you are worthless. The devil came to tell him that you are not worthy to be loved and there's no purpose and there's no destiny in you. And all of those things could have made him extremely bitter except for the fact that whilst Umkubus Leroux is praying and is thinking, God, what do I do with the light that you have given me? God, what do I do with what I'm sensing here? There's another young boy here that's fighting for his life. There's a, there's a young boy here that is speaking to God and say, Father, do you love me? Father, do you have a purpose for my life? God, is there a way out? And there's somebody else that is praying, God, show me what to do. And there's somebody else that's saying, Jesus, can you save me? And there's somebody else that's saying, Jesus, use me. And the one and the other meet. And destiny happens. The need and the provision comes together. There's a lot of need all around us. And there's a lot of provision that's sitting here. There's a lot of need in this room as well. And there's provision even for those needs in this room as well. My dad had to leave school when he was standard six. Worked his way through high school and eventually ended up at, at university. That cycle was broken in our lives. And I'll, I'll take the next 10 minutes and, and wrap up. The fatherlessness and the illegitimacy never defined my dad. He was a, like I said, he was a minister. In Dutch Reformed Church, but we were always priority for him. He would go, he would take us along on his house visit. Some of my best memories are Heisbesuke. I would go with my dad, we'd go and do Heisbesuke. Ah, he was lacking because there was always a treat in it for me. People would always spoil me. And, and very often in the poorest of communities as well, there was something so special. One of my most special memories of us three boys. Um, riding on my dad's back as he was getting home from, from doing his rounds. And so he loved us, and he was there for us, and, and, he, and he prayed for us, and he was constant. My best memories are of waking up early at night and hearing my dad praying. And he's still doing it. One of my girls went to stay with grandpa and grandma a few weeks ago, and she gets home, and she's like, Dad, opa's weird. Like, drie in die ochtend, pad badkamer toe. Hy stap om die huis. Praise, I hear him praying. I remember that waking up. He's still doing the same thing. There was something that was birthed within the traumatic experiences of his life, but when the gospel was imparted into him, that caused him to grow resilient and caused him to impart that into my life. And so we could grow up, all of us having born within the safety of a marriage, myself, my two brothers. By the way, you can make the sums as who was the naughtiest. Okay, I was in the middle, Dumli second, and in the middle, right? So I heard all the jokes. Okay, um, my brother's youngest um, son there, only son thus far, baptized, baptized, dedicated a while ago. And the Lord started speaking to me even before we had our own girls to say, Heinrich, you have received this father's love from your dad. You can't keep this to yourself. So we had the privilege of starting to foster Jonathan. Um, if you go back to the previous slide. He came to us when he was five months old. He's 14 years old now. Because I realized that freely I have received. Freely I need to give. I cannot just be happy with my amazing life. I need to pass this on. 
that God has done something in my life which I need to pass on. The amazing thing is that each one of us can start a new cycle. Each one of us, as we're sitting here, we can break cycles and we can start new cycles. The alcohol abuse and the marital disintegration my father grew up with did not define him. Last year, they were married for 49 years. An amazing celebration that they had. My, my dad still brings my mom flowers every morning from the garden, still reveres it. I haven't heard him raise his voice to her once. An amazing man of God. They, they specialized in helping people who were addicted to alcohol. He was chaplain at the Salvation Army. He grew up in an alcoholic home. His ministry is delivering messages of hope to people who are addicted to alcohol. His ministry is ministering to people who are trapped within sexual brokenness. The very thing the devil brought to destroy him and to crush him, God has turned it around to launch him. Your pain can be your launching pad into revival. Your pain can be the thing, the door that God wants to use to usher you into your anointing. People often ask me, I don't know what I'm anointed for. I don't know what I'm called for. And then I normally ask them, where's your pain? Where's your pain? Where's the area where the devil has come for you the hardest? It's normally a good sign of what God wants to do through your life. Let me just quickly share this with you as well with the, the, um, the sexual abuse that, that came against my, my dad. He's used a lot of the stories to write that book, but I was in my first year of teaching. And I was invited to this um, to the staff gathering by one of the older teachers at the school. When I arrived there, I discovered that there was basically nobody else. It was just me and one other younger teacher and this, uh, this, this older guy. Um, got late at night. I was quite far for me to drive. I wanted to drive home. They convinced me to stay. It's a lot of drinking. I became very uncomfortable with the whole situation. I said, no, I'm rather going to go to bed. And uh, in the middle of the night, I wake up with these two arms around me, drunk alcohol, breath in my, in my, my nostrils, and I just clamp up. And I start panicking, silent cry in my heart, Jesus, you got to save me, help me. The very next moment, this guy's friend comes walking into the room, and they start fighting. Obviously, he saw him with me in the bed. And it was a big thing. They start fighting. Gives me an opportunity to get out of there. Why am I sharing that with you? The same thing, the same spirit that came for my dad wanted to come for me. But because my dad had fought that thing and overcome that thing, I didn't go through that. It still came for me. I still had to go back and say, Mom and Dad, you've got to pray. This thing happened. I had to deal with the shame because I felt like I should have known better. I shouldn't have been in the situation. I should have seen the signs coming, you know, what the devil comes to do to you and to come and accuse you. And they could minister to me and they could speak healing over me and could speak release over me and could speak identity over me again. It still came for me. So when you say yes to breaking the cycle, it doesn't mean the devil doesn't come again. But what it does mean is that the onslaught gets less. It means that the authority gets more. So that thing that came to crush my dad's spirit just got a little bit close to me. We could kick it out finally, and we could, could kick it out completely out of our bloodline. You are fighting battles today, not just for yourself, but for your offspring as well. You are fighting battles today, not just for yourself, but for your offspring as well. And when you want to give in, don't just think of yourself. Think of your offspring. Fight for them as well. I've never been tempted by alcohol. Why? Because my dad fought the battle. But I know my weakness, so I don't drink the stuff. I don't judge anybody that does, it's okay, but I know my weakness. And so for me, it's no, I'm closing that door. Because I know the battle that my dad won, I don't want to nullify that by being stupid. So I want to walk with an awareness 
of the legacy that I have as well. And then I'm on my second last slide. The poor education that my dad had. And I'm just sharing this with you because I want you, to, your faith to be strengthened tonight. I want you to look differently at those that you are working with and maybe you're thinking, what is this going to do? What, what, how is this going to make a difference? My father ended up at UWC and he could get there because Umkubus took him there in his final year of studies. He blessed him with a car so he could go to the different congregations where he had to do his practical teaching. And during that time as well, he went with his, um, with his roommate to go and visit Beaufort West. And when he um, got to his roommate's house, he met his roommate's beautiful sister. And here I stand, many years later. So that car, <laughs> oh, that car was a romantic vehicle, right? It was used by God to connect my mom and my dad. And for Mkubus, it was simply just, he's just responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit. He just wanted to bless this young man that he's so proud of, and he just wants to make a difference in his life. And I wonder, would I have been here today at Umkubus, not acted in obedience? So maybe it's just a car. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a vehicle of destiny. Maybe it's just a hug. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a hug that brings deliverance and healing. Maybe it's just a letter. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is a word that launches somebody into their destiny. Maybe it's just a, a maths lesson that you give. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's an impartation of faith and hope into a young man or young woman that needs to know somebody still believes in them. Many years later, I was, well, many years later, many years ago, I was, I was teaching Paul Ruiz, and I'm sharing this story, and I'm, I'm speaking to the guys, they're wealthy, they're affluent, and we're having to talk about what difference can you make in, in life, and I, and I share this story with him about this man that I, that I haven't met, but has made such a big difference in my life, and one person can literally change somebody else's life and set in motion a chain reaction, and here I am at this school teaching, and I'm and I have a position of influence. And as I'm, as I'm teaching, I'm sharing that story. I said this morning, one of the sons that came over, it wasn't actually, it was um, Anne-Marie, not Anne-Marie, what's, yeah, what's her name? Anne-Marie, it was Anne-Marie, the girl. It was a joint session between Blumhoff and Peru. Anne-Marie, the, the girl, she was in grade, grade nine, comes up to me and she says, Sir, where was this, where was this farm that you're talking about? It's Felizdorp, and what's his name? It's Bora Dane. And she starts weeping. She says, I cannot believe it. That farm is my grandfather's farm. And we just had a family gathering a while ago, and my grandfather's going into a state of depression because he doesn't believe that his life has made a difference. And I could tell her, you go back home, and you tell your grandfather that his life and his obedience has changed my life. It's changed the lives of my children. It has made a difference. And a short while later, Umkubus died, and they asked my father to do the funeral. He would never have dreamt in his wildest dreams that the young farm boy with the knocked knees and the snot knees that he was loving and inspiring, that one day that boy's son would be teaching his grandkids. Never. And never would he have had an idea that many years later, his great-grandchildren would be dedicated to the Lord by that farm boy's son. In Somerset West, I have the privilege of having Etienne and go to that um, last slide with the next one, next one, next one, next one, next one with a photo. 
Yes. It's Etienne. Uh, I'm going to know him as well. And his wife, Jean. And I had the privilege of um, teaching at Paul Ruiz where Etienne was there. And I had the privilege of dedicating their little boy. Mkobus didn't know that one day his great-grandchildren would be dedicated to the Lord by the son of the little boy that he was ministering to, that he was believing in. That is transgenerational revival. That is transgenerational legacy that outlasts your own life. Who knows what you're going to set in motion through your obedience to the Lord? Who knows who's waiting right now for you to just step out and say, Lord, yes, I want to be obedient to you. I want to be used by you. I want to pray for you guys if we can stand. I want to read for us the Psalm, Psalm 145, verse 4. It says, The one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I believe that there is a powerful, powerful transgenerational anointing that rests on this congregation. It's a reason why this evening service has so many young people. There's a reason why there are different age groups together within this place. And there's a reason why you have to hear what you're hearing tonight. There are dreams that live in your heart. My dad turned um, 73 when he, he brought out his book. It's been a lifelong dream of his. He's been working on that for a long time. And I'm inspired by the fact that he's never given up. He still wants to write more books. He still believes that there's it's more that God wants to do through his life. I felt in my, my, in my heart as well that for some of us as older people, God is saying to you, there's still so much more that God wants to do through your life. The best chapters are about to be written. The best chapters are about to be written. We cannot go into the promised land without the generation that has seen the Lord's goodness. The generation that has been faithful. We need all the generations together. It's revival for it truly to be a work of God needs to be transgenerational. So I actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask tonight if we can have representatives of the different generations. I'm going to ask all of you guys under the age of 30, if you can come to the front, just come and stand here. Make a line under the age of 30. Just come in. Come and make a line. See if you can line up. Yes. Oh my goodness. That's like almost all of you. If you're a little bit confused, phone your mom quickly. In a very real way, the future of our country depends on you. In a very real way, the fact that you guys are worshiping the Lord gives us hope. In a very real way, the fact that you are hungry for God makes us believe that God has a future for our nation. In a very real way, the fact that you are desiring to follow Christ and not just your own traditions or even your family's plans for your life excites us. And we want to pray for you. We want to pray that you will walk the straight and narrow. We want to pray that you will not 
succumb to peer pressure. We want to pray that you will know that God has raised you up for times such as this. This made you male or female, black or white, whatever, for a very real purpose. There was a time in my life when, when I went through a bit of identity crisis. Lord, why do I look the way that I look? You know, very often I would go into circumstance. I remember in Uppington, went to the swimming pool there when it just opened up the whole thing. When they removed the group areas act. Got into the pool. A lot of the guys that were swimming in the pool, they got out of the pool because the first time they would share water with somebody from a different skin color. But the one guy came up to me and said, I don't want to be funny, but what are you? What nation are you? I'm like, well, if you can't see, then I'm not going to tell you either. But God has given me an ability to navigate between different cultures because of the way that He has created me and He has wired me. God has given you a purpose and a destiny. It's made you for a very real reason. I want to say to you, just with an atmosphere of trust, for those of you guys that are Afrikaner, English-speaking white kids, young people, I want to say to you, don't submit to the spirit of guilt. Don't submit to the spirit of guilt. Guilt robs you of your creativity, your initiative, and your authority. God has set you free. God has set you free, and there's a purpose. This country needs you. This country needs you to be what God has called you to be. Don't be second-rate you. Be everything God has called you to be. And then to those of us who are brown or black or pink or whatever else, don't allow the past to shape your future. Don't submit to any spirit of victimhood. Don't submit to any spirit of anger. God has called you as this generation to live in a higher level. To live in a higher level. He's going to do something amazing and beautiful through you. And I want to ask the older people if you can come and just come and lay your hands on, on the younger people. I want to I want, I want us to pray for them. So just step a little bit forward, make, make room so that people can move in between you quickly. And in the spirit, I just want to, to pray a prayer over you. And I, I want us to try and have our hands. If you have to put your one hand on one person, other hand on somebody else, we can try and make sure that we cover everybody. If you, if you don't have a hand on your shoulder, just put up your, put up your hand. If you don't have a hand on your shoulder, somebody that's un, unmarked. <laughs> there at the back. I'm going to say to the older people, I know that some of you are still very young. I mean, 30s young, 40s young, 50s young, all young. I want to say to you that we need you. Our country needs you. The body of Christ needs you. Pray just a blessing over this generation. Pray a blessing. Tell them in the spirit that they are not alone. They are not alone. Father, I thank you, God, in Jesus' name. That together we're going to experience and see revival, Lord. Together we're going to see and experience revival, God. I thank you, Lord, for generations that believe in each other, Father. They will walk with one another, God, in Jesus' name.
Thank you for the wisdom that gets imparted now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Lord, I, I speak a prophetic anointing over the older generation, Lord, to prophesy, to release dreams, Lord God, over the young generation, Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. The Lord is going to show you even just things to break in the spirit. Just break it. Break it. Don't, don't double guess yourself. Just break it. The Lord shows you strongholds in the spirit. Just break it. Just break it. Just break it. Lord, we come against shame in Jesus' name, Father. We come against, Lord God, peer pressure in the name of Jesus. We come against sexual brokenness, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Father, we come against guilt in the name of Jesus. We come against anger in the name of Jesus, Lord. We speak life. We speak light. We speak life. We speak hope in Jesus' name over this generation, Father. Lord, we believe in what you are doing in this generation, Lord, in the name of Jesus, Father. We believe, God. We believe, God. We believe. We believe, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Lord, we just release your love. We release your love, Father, in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray for young men, Lord, in this room that have been sexually abused, Lord. Pray for them, Father. Release over their identities in the name of Jesus. Declare over them, Lord, they will not be defined by those experiences, God. In Jesus' name, Lord, thank you. I call forth that masculinity, Lord. In Jesus' name, I call forth their masculinity, Father. I declare over them they will be good husbands, Lord, and great dads, God. In Jesus' name, Father. In Jesus' name, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Father. We come against words of death, Lord God, that have been spoken over them. In Jesus' name, we cancel those words of death and release words of life, Lord. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Lord, in the name of Jesus, Father, thank you. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for the opportunities that you give us, Lord. Thank you for the life that you give us, God. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' name. Amen.